Kerchit? Is that how you say your last name? I got it right. I normally don't get it right, but Dakota never told me how to say it, so. <laughs> Welcome. <coughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, most people do not get that right. It's, it looks like Burchett, but uh, there's a long story. My dad's from eastern Kentucky, and apparently uh, there were two different there were the Burchetts and the Burchettes, and they did not want to be connected to each other somehow. So that's that's the story I got from my dad, anyhow. Uh, well, let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. I'm going to read through verse 17. I'm going to start at the beginning of 1 Timothy 1, read through verse uh, 17. I really want to focus just on, if you just... If you turn that, you'll see especially verses 12 through 17. While you're turning there, uh, I'm thankful to have been invited back. Glad to be back here with you. I was just with Dakota on Friday and um, a couple other pastors. And we we get together once a month, the last Friday of each month, and just encourage one another and drink coffee and... um, so that, that's a real blessing in my life to have friends like that in the ministry. Um, last time I was here, I was mentioning my son who got his truck here in Holt, and my son is here with me, uh, Luke, this morning. So, And this is a bonus for us because we've already been invited to lunch afterwards for your gathering, so this is pretty good. He bought his truck up here, but uh, we did not drive his truck up here because we can't afford the gas. So... <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, um, why don't we do this? Let's, I'm going to read this, this passage, and then we will pray together. And then we'll think especially about verses 12 through 17. So, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted." Now look at verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, to the King of Ages, immortal, invisible, The only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, please help us to not only understand 
why Paul said what he did here at this point in 1 Timothy. Help us to not only understand the facts of these verses, the, the details, but to see something about you and something about us and to see we have really the same need as the Apostle Paul, and I pray we would all essentially have the same story leading unto thanksgiving and praise in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So when I became a follower of Jesus, I was 14 years old, and uh, I was fairly quickly taught how to share my testimony in this group that I was part of. It was Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and this was not original to this group, but um, you've probably heard this before, and it's not a bad idea, actually, to think about how to share your testimony and even thinking about it this way. So we were taught, uh, as high schoolers, we were taught, you know, you talk about who you were before Jesus, kind of the before, and then Jesus' saving work, like what happened to you, what Jesus did, what God did for you through His Son. And then you talk about now what has become of your life since you've become a believer, since you've become a follower of Jesus. So it's kind of the before and then the saving event in your life, and then what has Jesus done for you? What is it, what is it meant for you as far as the rest of your days and the change that's come in your life? Not a bad idea, not a bad way to share your testimony. Well, all of those elements actually are found here in the Apostle Paul's testimony as he, in this little section, really what he's doing is he's giving thanks to God for saving a wretch like him. He's praising God at the end of our passage here for uh, what he has just said. Now, I think what is often ignored when we think about this section of Scripture that you've probably heard taught a time or two in your life, I think what is often ignored is why did Paul say this at this point in 1 Timothy? In other words, he's not just sharing his testimony just to kind of share it and then move on with what he really wants to say. He has to have a point, doesn't he? He has to have a purpose. Why did he? Yeah, he's giving thanks. That's very common for Paul to give thanks when he writes. But why give thanks for this specific thing? for God's saving work in his life. Now, some would say, well, um, Paul is making a just a parenthetical comment here because he's just mentioned in verse 11 the gospel. Did you see that in verse 11? Uh, the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. And so having just mentioned the gospel, some would say, well, then he just kind of, it's a digression, it's a parenthetical comment, it's like, oh, I've talked about the gospel. Now I want to give thanks to God for the gospel's work in my life. I can, I can get behind that a little bit. Maybe it is a bit of a parenthetical comment, but it's a parenthetical comment with a purpose. In other words, it's not divorced from the context. Paul is showing through his testimony that salvation is by the mercy and grace of the Lord, and he's showing that in contrast to the ignorant law infatuation and law teaching of the false teachers in Ephesus and the surrounding area. Did you hear about these guys up there when I was reading? It's kind of hard to hear. You haven't read maybe 1 Timothy in a while. All of a sudden, you're supposed to remember everything that's said there. I get that. So let me just point out a couple of things. So uh, verse 4 these false teachers were devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And then verse 7 is almost comical. These guys, Paul says, they desire to be teachers of the law without understanding, you see that in verse 7, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. It's kind of like a young preacher sometimes. 
who, who tries to say too much, more than he actually knows. And, and maybe, you know, gets a little animated and to kind of fool people, but he actually doesn't really know much about what he's talking about or the things about which he makes competent assertions. Well, way worse than that were these guys because they were leading people astray, leading people away from the doctrine of Christ. You can go read about that in chapter 6, what Paul says. They were really adding the externals to the gospel. And Paul is contrasting salvation by mercy and grace compared to that nonsense. And so Paul is showing himself to be an illustration of verse 5. Verse 5, Paul says, The aim of our charge is love. Timothy, the aim of, of the apostolic charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. It's the gospel, in other words, that produces, it's the gospel that saves, and it's the gospel that produces love. And so he's really here in this section writing to encourage Timothy, and really the the people of the churches in Ephesus, the hearers, the readers of 1 Timothy, beyond Timothy, he's writing to encourage them on in gospel ministry, on in gospel centeredness. What, what Paul is doing here in verses 12 through 17 is he's saying the gospel of grace saves and changes even the worst sinners. Stick with that. Stick with the good news. Don't, why, Timothy, you, you cannot let these people be distracted away from this powerful gospel. <laughs> you, these false teachers are moving people away from the very thing that saved a wretch like me. That's nonsense, and, and it can't happen. So he's going to go on then and, and, and say in verse 18, which I didn't read, this charge I entrust to you. Like, you got to do this. The, these prophecies have been made about your life that you would have this kind of ministry standing for this true, powerful gospel. So stick with the gospel, Timothy. So that's why it's here. Now, we're going to wrap back around to that at the very end. But what I want to do now is let's just kind of land inside these verses and let's join Paul in marveling at and in giving thanks to God for His amazing grace. And I'm going to give you three handles to hold on to, three headings that will guide us through. And they're kind of related to that idea of before Christ, and then what Christ has done, did for me in saving me, and then what I've become in Christ. But we're going to see it specifically in Paul's life. So here's the first handle, or here's the, the first heading, God's grace was Paul's only hope. God's grace was Paul's only hope. Now, look at Paul before Christ in verse 13. He says, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. That's who he was formally. I was a blasphemer. Meaning he hated Jesus. He hated the followers of Jesus. And he talked about it. He said it out loud. He slandered them. He was a persecutor. Let me just read one place in Acts that describes the kind of persecution that the Apostle Paul was about. Acts 26, verse 9, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. He was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor. And he was an insolent Opponent, meaning he was violent. He took pleasure in inflicting pain on others, namely people who followed this Jesus. So what, what we're getting at here is this doctrine of total depravity. 
This is Paul's testimony. And really, essentially, we are just like him. We are born in sin. Every aspect of our human nature has been affected, so we are spiritually dead, unable to save ourselves. Like the Apostle Paul, God's grace is our only hope. Now, you might say, when just kind of hearing about Paul, hearing his testimony, you might say, well, I'm not as bad as Paul. And in a sense, that can be true. Just in a sense. What I mean is, he, he did some awful things. So an actual sins committed, that you maybe haven't done the kinds of things that the Apostle Paul did. Breathing murderous threats against believers and and raging fury against the church and so forth. So in that sense, I get it. However, in another sense, we, we are just as bad. We, we are born in sin. We are enemies of God. We are rebels right there along with the Apostle Paul. One of my favorite Bible teachers, our kids get to hear every summer at camp. His name is Jim Oreck. And uh, so I get this illustration from him, but he, he, he says, imagine you have two glasses of water, good, clean drinking water. But then you have a vial of deadly poison. And into the first glass of clean drinking water, you put one drop of deadly poison. And into the second glass of clean drinking water, you put 10 drops of deadly poison. The reality is, at that point, both glasses of water have been ruined. Sin is that poison that ruins us and pervades us all and comes out in various ways, in various sins, and, and, and sometimes you're pressed to a certain point, and it comes out and it surprises you. And so, we need deliverance that can only come from outside of us, because we're born in sin. It's like the psalmist said, in sin my mother conceived me. He wasn't talking about a, a relationship that is, you know, an illicit relationship his mom had. He's talking about who he was from the start. He wasn't born in Christ. He was born in Adam, like all of us. So God's grace was Paul's only hope. God's grace is our only hope. Notice also, Paul before Christ, verse 13, he says, I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Unlike the false teachers, perhaps, is the idea who they were not acting ignorantly because the false teachers were professing faith in Christ and yet adding to that gospel. Whereas here, it may be something like this idea of or an allusion to uh, unintentional sin. You, you can read about, for example, in Numbers versus purposeful rebellion. I'll talk more about that in a minute. What we know is the Apostle Paul was ignorant, well, Saul at this point, right? Uh, he's ignorant of Jesus as Messiah. He thought he was serving God. But he, he knew um, he deserved the judgment of God. He's very honest, very open about that. The Apostle Paul would be the first one who, who would say, there is no such thing as salvation by sincerity. So as long as they're being sincere over there somewhere in the world, the gospel hasn't come to them yet, but as long as they're being sincere, no, 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 no. What are you going to do, just end missions? You say that kind of stuff. You're like, why take the name of Jesus? Just leave them in their ignorance. No, they are accountable. They need the gospel. And so Paul was ignorant, but he, 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 he was worthy of judgment. And so, God's grace was Paul's only hope. That's number one. Number two, God's grace overcame Paul. So, remember my little 
testimony template before Christ and then what Christ did for Paul. Here it is. God's grace overcame Paul. Now look at verse 13. He says, but I received mercy. And then he says the same in verse 16, but I received mercy. Now go back to verse 13. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now, that's a little bit interesting, isn't it? Does that sound a little funny to your ear? I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. It almost sounds like he's saying, I deserved it. But that is not what he is saying. We, We know the Apostle Paul would never write something like that and mean something like that. So the idea has to be something like he had not gone too far. There is this idea of willful rejection that can result in a person's life in hardening beyond repentance, even in, go read Romans 1, God gave them over, God gave them over, God gave them over to their sin because there was such purposeful rebellion that they've disqualified themselves. And so Paul didn't know the truth, and to use Jesus' language, he didn't blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. And so he hadn't disqualified himself in that sense. Now, it's worth pausing right here and just realizing this can happen. You know, the the longer you go rejecting Jesus, the harder you can get to these glorious truths. And just this willful rejection. Some of you have been hearing the gospel again and again and again. And so today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Come to Christ today. This could be the greatest day of your life. You come to this Jesus. Now, God had pity on guilty Paul. He didn't give him what he deserved, and he gave him what he didn't deserve. But we'll talk about that first idea of mercy. He had pity on guilty Paul, which makes absolutely zero sense. It's like, um, I don't think I shared this with you the last time I was with you, uh, but it's an illustration that just sticks in my mind. And some of you maybe knew about this. Maybe you participated in this. I don't know how far out this way it got, but I know it was in West Virginia back in the early 80s. The Vietnamese pot-bellied pig pet craze. Have you ever heard about it? This is a real thing that somebody duped somebody initially, and the thing spread, and they said these Vietnamese pot-bellied pigs will be great house pets. They were told they would grow to be about 40 pounds, and they're very, very docile, very, just be a nice pet for you to have. Well, what was the reality? The reality was, They grew to be about 300 pounds, and they were not nice. And so what you had, at least as the story I've read in West Virginia goes, is you had a lot of barbecues happening. Um, But there was a man. His name was Dale Riffle. This is a true story. He had a big property, big kind of farmland. And he started to hear about what was going on with these pigs, and he realized, man, somebody's got to rescue these pigs. And so he took one, and then he took another. Before long, he had on his property over 200 Vietnamese pot-bellied pigs. Why? Well, um, he said, let me get his exact quote, because I think it's priceless. He said, we're all on earth for some reason, And I guess rescuing pigs is my lot in life. How do you explain that? It doesn't make any sense. Why would a guy love pigs so much? 
Why would a guy be merciful to pigs? Why would a guy be gracious to pigs? Do you see where I'm going with this? How, how do you explain God loving Paul? Why would God be merciful to Paul? Why would God be gracious and loving and kind to any sinner? But he was. It, it, it doesn't make any sense, and that's the point. It's, the gra- it's all of grace. It's, it's God's love. He just chose to. It, because it was nothing in Paul, just as if you're a believer, it was nothing in you. You did not merit this at all, just like the Apostle Paul. Paul did nothing to receive mercy. And then, verse 14, this idea of God giving something that is totally not deserved, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. Stop right there. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me, an overflowing amount of unmerited favor. You know, I think it's fine to use sometimes acronyms, G-R-A-C-E, right, grace? God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches poured out upon Paul. God's riches poured out upon sinners like us at the expense of Christ through the finished saving work of Christ. I think that's very important to add to this understanding of this passage. Um, It's important to see that all of this, all of this mercy, all of this grace is real and it is effective because of the ministry of Christ. Look at verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Christ went, he came, he went to the cross, he died for sinners, he was raised for their justification. He actually accomplished what he came to do, dying for his sheep, paying their penalty. The resurrection is a declaration. Sin, death, defeated, conquered for sinners. So uh, uh, we were just talking about one of the pastors in our church who knows um, an uncle uh, and this guy's name is Jim, and I've heard Jim tell the story about how he, this is years ago, he was listening to Eric Alexander preach. Eric Alexander, I think it's from, I don't know, somewhere in Great Britain. And Eric Alexander was talking about Revelation 5 and, and Christ paying the ransom for people from every tribe and nation so forth. And he, he was saying, Christ, Christ was successful. He, it, it wasn't like, maybe I'm going to save a few. It was like, no, I'm saving my people dying on the cross here. Like, I'm going, I'm being intentional here. I, I'm, I'm going to save people from all of these different... So Jim is listening to this message and just, just overwhelmed by the idea that at the end, he, he turned to the person next to him in tears and he said, Christ died for me. It just was overwhelming. It wasn't like some possibility. And Jim was a believer, but it was just coming home to his, to his, his, his conscience and his heart. Christ died for me. Are you kidding me? It's not, by the way, it's not, this will break some hearts. Maybe, I don't know if anybody's a Michael W. Smith fan, but it's not above all others he thought of me. That, that is such a bad line in that, that song that he sings. It's not above, no, but he did think of you along with all others he came to save. He accomplished what he came to do. This is love. This is grace. This is how grace and mercy can be poured out upon any of us. It's because of the finished work of Christ that was that was he was successful in doing that. So in the uh, 1904 Welsh revival, I've I've heard recently that there's a hymn that I've really grown to love. My son will play it. My son plays the guitar, and 
and uh, helps with the music at our church. And that song that, uh, there, there was a hymn that they used to just sing often, I was told, during the Welsh revival of 1904. And it's the hymn, Here is Love. Here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood. When the prince of life, our ransom, shed for us his, his precious blood. The, the second verse goes on to say, On the mount of crucifixion, fountains opened deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above. And heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. It's, it's because of the cross that God's grace and mercy was effective in the Apostle Paul's life because Christ had, had, had paid the penalty for the Apostle Paul. He'd given his life for, among other people, for Paul. So in Paul's life and in anyone's life who believes in Christ like Paul did on that, that fateful trek to Damascus, there is no amount of sin that God's grace in Christ cannot overcome. Did you hear uh, the, the hymn? Grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above. The idea is grace overflowed uh, incessant. Some, some of you kids have a, a sibling that just talks incessantly, you know, just constantly. This is more and more and more and more and more. You're just like, man, this kid, my brother never shuts up. Or my sister never shuts up. This is incessant. Well, that's the idea of grace, of God, just, just incessant, more and more and more grace. And so that grace is so much and so powerful, can go so deep and so wide that it, that it could even reach down and deliver somebody like the Apostle Paul. Why? Verse 16 says, I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. So God's grace was Paul's only hope. Same for us. God's grace overcame Paul. A lot of us have that same testimony in here, don't we? I hope we all could by even the end of our time in here. And then third, God's grace made Paul a servant of Christ. Remember my testimony template? Before Christ, the work of Christ on your behalf, saving you, and then after you have become a follower of Christ. What, what became of you? Well, what became of the Apostle Paul? Well, God's grace made Paul a servant of Christ. Look at verse 12. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful. Now, what is that? There's another one that you think, what do you mean he judged me faithful? Meaning he looked ahead and he saw that I was a pretty good guy, and so he appointed me to service? No, Paul would never talk like that. He would never mean that. So it must be either looking ahead. Um, Christ Jesus judged that I would be faithful. It could be that. And then that makes sense because anybody God saves, he does a good job of it. When Christ changes somebody, they're not perfect. We still sin, but there's a trajectory and there's going to be usefulness in that person's life. So Christ judged that I would be faithful or it could mean looking at the present. Once, once Paul was saved, he judged that I would be faithful. Well, of course, that's the idea. He doesn't just save somebody and leave them 
he saves them and then uses them. He knows they're going to be faithful because he's good at what he does when he saves somebody just like he was in the Apostle Paul's life. So then he was appointed to service. Do you see that at the end of verse 12? Appointing me to his service, unlike the false teachers. What do false teachers always do? They appoint themselves. They take some authority upon themselves. I mean, even even an elder in a church has authority, but it's delegated by the head of the church, Jesus, and that authority is really utilized through this authoritative book as we lead and teach and so forth. False teachers, no. They get their own ideas they step outside of the God-given constraints of authority and, and, and appoint themselves. Well, Paul's saying, no, I was appointed by Jesus. And we know the story. Stopped in his tracks, blinded, changed, saved, appointed to his service. Verse 14, he says, The grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So, um, I don't know if this still is true today. I know in ancient Egypt, they really depended upon the, the uh, flood stage of the Nile. So the, this, the, the Nile River would flood, and that would provide the moisture for the crops then to grow. I don't know if that still happens today. Maybe some of you do. Uh, know that things have changed or whatever, but that's what used to happen, at least in ancient Egypt. So one man talking about this idea of, of uh, verse 14, uh, grace overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. One man said, the Nile overflows, the crops abound. Grace overflowed and faith and love sprang up. I think that's a beautiful image. Or uh, Stott, another really great line that comes from John Stott. Grace, speaking of Paul's life, grace flooded with faith, a heart previously filled with unbelief, and flooded with love, a heart previously polluted with hatred. That's what God does. When he changes people, it's, it's unto these attributes, really, of faith and love. Even verse 17, even verse 17 shows us the power of the gospel to change lives. Look at verse, verse 17. To the king, he just, he just breaks out here and prays. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, I've done, this is really interesting to me because I've done the math and, and I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm right about this, that at this point in the Apostle Paul's life, he's been a believer for almost three decades. I think it's 28 years exactly. I've been a believer, so I'm 46 since I was 14, so a little over three decades. This is Paul, a little under three decades, but yet as he's talking about this glorious gospel of grace, as he's writing, he just has to write in there praise. Now, I know in this gathering right now, there are a few of you who have been believers for a few decades at least. Maybe, maybe three decades, maybe four decades, maybe five decades, maybe six decades. I, I, don't, I, can't, I don't know, but I know there are some people in here that have been believers, kind of like I have, for at least three decades. And so I know what can happen. What can ha- I don't know why it's happened sometimes in your life. I can maybe tell you why it's happened in my life. But you can get a little cold. You can get a little crusty. 
Like, those, those Sunday school participants didn't know what hit them when I walked in there as a saved 14-year-old, man. I mean, the, I didn't know much, but I was very excited about Jesus. And, you know, all these decades later, you just say, where is that? You ever ask that question? Now, where is that? Um, I mean, if you've gone decades and the, the thinking about Jesus and thinking about the grace of God, if you've gone decades and it doesn't stir your affections at all, you've got to ask yourself, am I really a Christian? I mean, let's just be honest. You just have to ask yourself that question. But then I understand, though, we, you know, we have seasons where we're more on fire and we're kind of cold or whatever. And maybe what we're just supposed to see and get out of this this morning, before I kind of move to concluding encouragements, but let me just pause right here. Maybe some of us here need to just see this illustration of the Apostle Paul, an older man by now, having been a believer for nearly three decades, just talking about the grace of God and the mercy of God, and just amazed at this Christ Jesus coming into the world to save sinners, and the Apostle Paul just breaking forth in praise. And maybe some of us need to just see that example and say, God, I, Lord, uh, like the psalmist, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Maybe that's just what you need to do today. It's just tell the Lord that. Ask the Lord to just give me that, that zeal that I first had. Um, God's grace was Paul's only hope. God's grace overcame Paul. God's grace made Paul a servant of Christ. Now let me just give you three concluding encouragements from this passage. Number one, let's get in on this saving grace. Let's get in on everybody in here. Let's get in on you can get in on this saving grace. Now, it, it starts with acknowledging your personal dreadful state before the holy God. So, um, you know, when Paul says in verse 15 about being uh, a sinner of whom I am the foremost, in one sense that is there to tell us, okay, th this is, th if God can save somebody that sinful, then God can save anybody, including me. That's true. But also, we're kind of shown in Paul's verbiage what he's saying that this is where we all have to come. Conviction of sin. Jesus said, I'm going to go away because the Spirit's going to come and He's going to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And so conviction of sin is part of the pathway to believing in Jesus. In fact, I would say the Bible teaches that you've got to come to a knowledge of who you are before this holy God if you're going to be saved. But then, when you recognize, kind of like the Apostle Paul, you just come to the point where it's like, look, I've got problems. I am a sinner. God is holy. Judgment is coming. When you, when you come to that point, you are a candidate. And unbelievably, you're, you're perfectly positioned then to then hear, but Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I'm a sinner. So you can get in on it. Christ, you could say with Jim, Christ, Christ died for me. He's risen. He's coming back. Um, see a few kids in here. I hadn't planned to share this little story, but I think I will. There. What was the guy's name? Can you remember the guy's name? Thomas Chalmers. Um, there's a pastor, and he was visiting an older lady. You kids listening? You, you, he, uh, he was going over there to have coffee with this older lady who was visiting his church, I think. And she wasn't a believer. 
she just, he just kept telling her about this Jesus and pleading with her to believe. And, and, uh, and, and she just wouldn't believe. And she just felt like if I believe, that's a work. And he's like, no, it's not a work. You're just, you're just receiving what has been given to you. You're just resting on what Jesus has done for you. That, that's, not, that's not a work. We'll let that. So he's sitting there. He's, he's telling this older lady, you know, please believe. Well, eventually he's had his cup of coffee, maybe two cups of coffee. He's had a piece of cake. And uh, so he's got to go home. So he, he goes to the door and he, he walks down the steps and she's standing there at the door, this older lady. And, and as he's walking, there's a little kind of a stream. And there's a little bridge that goes over the stream that he had to walk over the bridge in order to get to the pathway home. And so he's, he's saying goodbye, and he gets to the bridge, and he stops. And he, he looks at the bridge, and he steps back. And then he kind of reaches out and touches the bridge with his foot and steps back. And he does, maybe he even leaned down and touched it with his hand and stepped back. Well, this, this older lady's watching from, I can't remember, the door or the window. And she yells out. This is in Scotland. And so she yells at him, lip and till it. Lip and till it. Now, what does that mean? It means trust it. Depend on that bridge. You understand what she's saying? It's okay. Go. It will, it will hold you. You'll be safe. He turns around to the old lady and he says, Trust in Jesus Christ. He's as safe as the bridge. He'll bring you across. He'll bring you home. He'll save you. Just trust in Him. You can get in on this saving grace. Trust in Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin. Rely on Him. There's nothing you can do. He's done it all for you. So that's number one. Let's get in on this saving grace. Number two, now we're wrapping back. Remember I said we're going to wrap back around at the very beginning, at the very end. Number two, let's major on this saving grace. Let's major on it. Let's major on this gospel, this good news, this saving grace. Not the law of Moses, Timothy, Church of Ephesus, and even today. Even in, even in our, some of us just, we are prone to go back to kind of a legal understanding of being right with God. The externals, external religion. No, 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 no. No, no. Christ has come. The seed has come. The Savior has arrived. Let's, let's be about Him. And then a life empowered by the spirit of service and, and gratitude unto Him. Let's, let's major on Him. Let's major on Him, not politics. Let's major on Christ and the gospel, not, not the Southern Baptist Convention or some other, what, some other denominational thing. All of those things have their place in our discussions. I'm not saying that, but in moderation. But when it comes to the gospel, let's just be excessive. Just, just gospel. A gospel people. Which will be a grateful people, a thankful people, a humble people. So, um, Timothy, believers in Ephesus, believers today, the gospel is glorious and powerful. It raises the dead. What are we doing going away from the gospel? It, it raised dead Paul. It raised a bunch of dead people in here. We've got a bunch of stories. We could just tell testimonies during lunch. It might be glorious. That's the power of the gospel. Why would you walk away from that? And don't get distracted. I tell our youth when we're going away from camp, um, I, I tell them, you know, uh, they had a whole week of no technology. And then they get in that van. I said, you're going to get in that van, and the devil and his demons are going to be sitting right there next to you. 
And they're going to be doing everything they can to take this gospel seed away from you. And they're going to even use an instrument that can be a good gift from God, but they're going to use it against you to distract you. And that's happening in too many of our lives. We are so distracted away from these good, wonderful, glorious things. Yeah, in moderation, but let's be gospel people in excess. The devil hates, if you're even thinking about this right now, about getting more, um, you know, serious about just being a gospel person and, and, and learning of this Christ and following this Jesus. So God help us. So number, number one, let's get in on this saving grace. Number two, let's major on this saving grace. And then finally, let's praise, let's thank and praise God. Let me do the order of the passage. Let's thank and praise God for this saving grace and then just keep living for him in the strength that God supplies. This is how the passage begins. I thank him, Paul says. This is how the passage ends in praise. It's no wonder that Paul breaks out in praise, verse 17, to the king of ages, to the one who sovereignly and rules and providentially governs every age, past, present, future, to the one who is immortal. He never decays. He is incorruptible. He is not subject to death. To the one who is invisible, he's unseen physically. Stott says, beyond the limits of every horizon. To the only God, Isaiah 45, 18, I am the Lord and there is no other. Here's my last question, we'll be done. Why, when thinking about this personal salvation accomplished by a gracious God, this personal salvation accomplished by a gracious God, why, when thinking about that and talking about that, does Paul burst forth with such grand language of the transcendent God. You ever wonder that? Very, very, very personal language about saving him. And then the praise, though, at the end is about this big, awesome God that is other than us. Why? Because our salvation, the deliverance of spiritually dead enemies of God, could only be accomplished by this great and awesome God. To him be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. on what we have heard and then we'll respond by singing Christ is all. <laughs>